We have a, a very uh, distinct pleasure of having one of the leading uh, international law experts looking at the issues of how international law applies to cyberspace with us um, to, uh, to, to, to give us a lecture and, and also answer any questions you have. And for those of, of you who are uh, lucky enough to also uh, be taking the uh, cyber law and policy class, we will have Anakin with us uh, both today and tomorrow for, uh, for the teaching of the international law section. Um, just to, to give a little bit of context for, um, for what Anakin's going to be talking about, um, in 2011, the, uh, the president issued the U.S. International Strategy for Cyberspace, which laid out a vision for achieving an open, interoperable, secure, and reliable cyberspace that fosters innovation, trade, human rights, security. And in sort of the top-level comment, President Obama said, the way we will achieve this is through establishing norms of responsible state behavior in cyberspace. And then over the last uh, several years, there, have been a series, there, is, there has been a series of UN groups of governmental experts who have looked at this exact issue. How do we apply international law, particularly international humanitarian law, to state activity in cyberspace? And they've made a, a number of recommendations um, in that regard to guide the international community forward. And then just a week ago today, President Obama and President Xi of China announced their commitment to furthering the development of international norms of state behavior for cyberspace and agreed to establish a high-level panel that would seek to, uh, to move the, the international legal debate and further develop the law in this area forward. So the, the timing of, of this discussion uh, couldn't really be better. So um, let me briefly introduce Anakin T. Ringus, um, who I have had the good fortune of knowing for a number of years, both as a professional colleague and as, as a good personal friend. She is a, currently a senior fellow for cybersecurity with uh, the International Institute for Strategic Studies based in London. Uh, she's also a professor affiliated with um, a large number of institutions, including Georgetown, uh, University of Tartu in Estonia, Tallinn Technical University in Estonia, the Swedish National Defense College, and I'm sure many more that um, I have failed to mention. Prior to uh, her role with, with IISS, she was the uh, first legal advisor for NATO's Cyber Defense um, Center of Excellence that was created in Tallinn following the 2007 attacks against Estonia. She also um, has practiced uh, international law in this area. She has served as the legal advisor for the Estonian government through uh, the last several rounds of the UN group of governmental experts looking at these issues. And um, she has, I think, some, some great thoughts to share with us about the way forward in this area. So without further ado, let me turn it over to Anakin. Good afternoon. And thank you very much for this opportunity to uh, come and share my observations about this complex and important issue with you. And um, I'm very thankful for this kind introduction. I, I however, do believe that it's uh, very difficult for anyone, as a matter of fact, to call themselves an expert on international law as it is, is to be applied to cyber because um, we all, I think, are in this uh, very much uh, students. And I myself, um, I'm a student of uh, 
Professor Ashley Deeks, for example, in her observations about the unwilling and unable test. I'm also considering myself a student uh, of both Tom and Al in uh, having been lucky to observe how they work with different governments to enforce uh, or, or elaborate the US policy on, on international cybersecurity issues. So, And then we all are, I, I'd say, also students of all great minds that have uh, come before us to think of issues that may change in time. So let me begin with this. I'm not an advocate for frequent changes in laws and constitutions. But laws and institutions must go hand in hand with the progress of the human mind. As that becomes more developed, more enlightened, as new discoveries are made, new truths discovered, and manners and opinions change with the change of circumstances. Now, before I go into the theme, let me walk you through some of the changes and circumstances that have that I have encountered in my, I would say, career with retrospect, though I never really had the clear career development in my mind when I graduated or since I graduated from law school. I I came to the issue of um, information technology and law, as a matter of fact, internet law discourse in late 1990s. And that was frankly where legal thinking about internet was um, in its very, at its very beginning. And that's where I came to learn the concepts of uh, consumer protection, intellectual property, um, data protection, early cybercrime as legally viewed, etc. And at the time, there was no law school, at least in Estonia or anywhere near to teach this. So um, I had to do a lot of self-education. And uh, for that, I visited many texts of uh, US uh, leading scholars at the time. And one that affected me or my thinking a lot was uh, Frank Easterbrook's take on the law of the horse and the whole question of uh, is cyber law really law, uh, a legal field in, in, its, in its own right. And from there, I, um, I joined the Estonian uh, bar, and uh, I became a practicing attorney in the field of uh, mainly data protection, but also telecommunications uh, contracts and uh, all issues related to internet service providers. From there, I ended up um, being a legal ec- expert advisor to some of the nationwide IT projects at Estonia as a very cyber, I would say, ICT-dependent country uh, launched. Uh, and I came to look into matters such as uh, e-health system or nationwide health information system and the implications, the legal implications of that. Then um, being in charge of the data protection uh, revisions in Estonian law when Estonia joined the, the European Schengen information system. So that was a, a view on, on law enforcement and the issues around that. And then from there um, uh, I ended up in this, um, one can say, lucky but also unfortunate situation of uh, 
having to say something about the 2007 attacks, uh, cyber attacks that hit the Estonian uh, nas- uh, governmental web servers and and that uh, definitely required not just national but international response. And uh, my uh, further work with the NATO Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence then took me to review in many ways the same themes from the perspective of defense and international cooperation and, uh, and then international security. So I've been in many ways very fortunate to have rather different angles to what I would say a big moving picture of, of cyber and um, and that kind of explains I guess why I have chosen the topic of a comprehensive normative approach to international cybersecurity as a theme for today. So let me share my, my views with you and I look forward to discussing every any element with you. So the talk, as promised, will be looking at, um, at key claims and propositions that are made about uh, whether and how existing international law applies to international cybersecurity. And uh, broadly deal with the issues, how do we deal with the issues of international information security, cyber arms race, uh, cyber conflict, cyber warfare. So. In my intervention, I will uh, discuss how international law and norms, in my view, are utilized as an element of national power, therefore correlating national positions on the applicability of international law uh, with uh, different views on cyber capabilities and then more fundamental views of different countries on the whole development of information society. I will uh, review some current re- legal international or international cyber norms development uh, attempts, as, uh, as Tom mentioned, and uh, refer to some then uh, national and expert discussions of the issue. And then I will try to examine or inspect some challenges that I see in applying international law, or in fact law in general, to cyberspace. And then finally, hopefully with your contributions, discuss some possible next steps or next developments in international law as we apply it to cyber. Now, in preparation of this talk, and this is the first time I talk uh, to this team, so bear with me. Uh, in, this, in the preparation of this talk, I asked, um, well, over years, I would say, a number of questions for myself, so I shared those questions with you as well, so you get to what my curiosity hits. So, is the conventional legal thinking sufficient to develop and maintain a culture of international cybersecurity? Hasn't the question of applicability of international law to cyber in a way been exhausted in like any single discipline that uh, has attempted to, to tackle this question? If so, why does it keep gaining prominence and in fact shows little resolution in international cyber negotiations and affairs. And what are maybe the what are the technocratic approaches to this complex issue uh, inevitably missing? And by technocratic I mean not just technical or political but also legal. So this like discipline locked views miss and therefore maybe leave us blind angled or blindfolded to broader 
normative strategies that support national interests and, and values as they are pursued in those negotiations. So these questions guide the selection of my remarks today. And I start by going to this whole question of a new treaty, as it uh, still is on the table for all countries to, to, to decide on. And the call for a new treaty on, uh, on matters of uh, international information security, in fact, was tabled by Russia in 1998. And uh, the choice, the Russian choice, was to table that question in the UN uh, First Committee, the Committee for uh, International Security and Disarmament. And, um, and that, in a way, ramifies the whole focus of, of this treaty, which is first the proposition that uh, ICTs, international, uh, in, uh, information and communication technologies, their development and use has reached the stage where they pose a threat to international peace and security. And to deal with those issues, international law as it exists is not sufficient or adequate. With that process, Russia invited countries to then discuss both those threats and then prospective solutions to those threats. And that started also then the whole process of the UN group of governmental experts who were called first in 2004 to look into the issue and since then have convened four times um, informing the Secretary General and the international community about their views on how how these questions are to be answered. Now, not surprisingly, the 2004-2005 GGE, our group of governmental experts, did not uh, say much on the matter. In fact, um, the 15 countries that then gathered were failed to uh, produce a consensus report. And, um, and there, were, there are definitely many reasons for that, but uh, one of those was that it, it was very early in, uh, for international thought on uh, cybersecurity and international cybersecurity and law. Now, since then, uh, things changed uh, considerably, right? Uh, have changed considerably. And then the next GG met 2009-2010. And that's uh, when we already had witnessed uh, incidents in Estonia, in Georgia, with the large-scale cyber attacks and the political motivation behind them. And, um, and like more fundamental conclusions about international law really date to years 2013 and then just this summer 2015 and I will return to some of these. Uh, UNGG discussions follow mainly three like uh, interrelated um, agenda points. It is the applicability of international law to cybersecurity, which has turned from whether it applies to how it applies. Then uh, norms of responsible state behavior, and I will return to what that means, and then confidence-building measures in, uh, in international cybersecurity. And uh, the, this sort of tripartite agenda of the UNGGE has in many ways uh, come to embrace a critical review of existing international law, potential er areas of further norms development, as well as then concrete short-term remedies to filling in the gaps that uh, obviously seem to exist in international law. Now, 
when I talk to the normative uh, or the normative aspects, then I would say that the normative needs to be distinguished from these routine and all-purpose uh, services of norms in political and legal processes. So I use this notion with a reference to rather calculated and purposeful aspirations to influence the existing world order by shaping the normative conscience of the international community. As I mentioned, one of the questions on the UNGG agenda is then this uh, how international law applies to cyberspace and or in cyberspace. And I would uh, claim that uh, despite, well, consensus wording of that international law is applicable, there are quite uh, different uh, views on the machinery of international law. And uh, now I go to where, in my view, those differences are rooted or, or how I've come to think about them. But first of all, the three leading cyber powers all come to the issue from relatively different standpoints. China speaks against the militarization of the Internet and advocates for peaceful use of cyberspace. And it maintains a position of uh, no first use of cyber weapons and also has declared its intention not to attack uh, civilian targets. This is in line with uh, very much with the Chinese general views on international law and uh, its five principles of uh, peaceful coexistence. The Russian position emphasizes, as already discussed, the need to work towards a future international legal regime to regulate the activities in the global cyberspace or information space, as the Russians put it, and uh, then accordingly emphasizes the need to adapt and develop the norms of international law with respect to state activities related to the use of information communication technologies. And then there is the US and the like-minded that emphasize that despite the unique attributes that information and communication technologies uh, bring, Existing principles of international law offers an appropriate framework to determine the rules and norms of behavior that should, use, should, should govern the use of cyberspace in connection uh, with both peacetime activities and hostilities. So I now zoom into the whole issue of uh, law of armed conflict because uh, in the US proposition uh, very strongly it it echoes that uh, the concept of both use at bellum provides the framework for considering whether an incident in cyberspace rises to the level of use of force, triggering a nation's right to self-defense. And then both the, also the use of the bellum concept serves as a framework for cyber purposes to identify the rules governing the, the uh, hostilities or, or uh, actions in armed conflict. Now, from a Western legal positivist perspective, it is really hard to contest the applicability and adequacy of uh, cyber international, existing international law to cyber conflict. And one, therefore, I would say might want to pay a thought to maybe broader strategic considerations that uh, accompany those national positions that don't echo the same view. The U.S. insistence on the applicability of LOAC in the cyber domain is, of course, a logical position for a state that enjoys and seeks to perpetuate its strategic advantage and technological supremacy in the cyber domain. But it is also 
a logical stand for a country or government that values individual, corporate, national and international responsibility for one's infrastructure and actions. A less approving uh, position on the applicability of the law of armed conflict is a logical stance for states with lesser resources and capabilities. Such a stance is designed to, at this, in this context, offer maybe Russia and China the widest freedom of maneuver while denying the more developed Western countries the ability to fully exploit their technical dominance, technological dominance. It also seeks to draw on the spirit of international law and to enshrine the US, UN Security Council as the sole legitimating authority in relation to state use of force. So the Chinese peaceful cyberspace comes with restriction to cyber capability development and deployment of existing military cyber capabilities. And uh, as a matter of fact, many technologically and economically less developed countries could take and have taken stances like this. So in this, in this slide, I would like to share with you some of my thoughts about uh, the essence of weight of um, some of the progress made by the GGE. Returning to what progress has been made, I mentioned that in 2013 the countries agreed that the international law is applicable to cyberspace, which, well, took 15 years to agree on. Now, in 2015, the countries uh, also said that, uh, well, they said sentence, they put in sentences that allow us to conclude that the international law of armed conflict is applicable in cyberspace. The fact that the UNGG was able to confirm the applicability of international law in cyberspace confirms to some that the issue was not fully settled in the 2013 GG, which actually goes against some of the like-minded commentary after that. And it may not mark, it, or it may well be that it doesn't mark any groundbreaking progress in and of itself, because of course, it cannot be regarded an accident that the 2015 GGE uh, talks to the issue of LOAC. But then, if you think about it from this perspective, for Russia and China, there is little loss in meeting the West in their aspirations to prove that law of armed conflict is a useful and current legal regime to deal with cyber issues. Failure to achieve this compromise would have meant loss of face to the extent where no report in 2015 might have been possible. And this, in turn, would have undermined the first committee process, a, U a Russian initiative, and also could have resulted in the international law talks falling back to their regular setting. Predominantly Western lawyers revisiting vague norms and coining interpretation that have for decades, in Chinese and Russian view at least, supported powerful countries in their aspirations. Well, as a side remark, then, Sino-Russo alignment in uh, dealing with international law and international information security dates back several years, meaning it was a Russian initiative, but now we're talking about this partnership between these two countries that share some of the views. And some of the examples of uh, what uh, they, have been table, they have tabled is the 2009 Shanghai Cooperation Agreement on uh, regional cooperation and international information security 
the Yekaterinburg Draft Convention that, is, that Russia has proposed to those countries that feel that they need more clarity on international law as applied to cyber. And then the Code of Conduct, the proposal for shared norms in dealing with uh, the development and use of ICTs that has been um, tabled in the UN. So playing the game of international law and this context predominantly on Western terms, empowers, I would say, both Russia and China in their immediate aspirations, raising concrete questions about the utility of international law in the context of advanced technologies and injecting their own views about what law is and how it is to be applied. As such, international law has become and it is still becoming an increasingly handy and powerful tool of national power projection. From a pragmatic perspective, dealing with uh, contemporary cybersecurity issues may require much more, in my view, than our traditional scholarship provides us with. Super complex international issues may have not just complex but multi-layered and carefully scaled, solu scaled solutions that uh, require accommodative attitudes towards minority views and also dissent. As Henry Kissinger states in his World Order, both the United States and China are indispensable pillars of the world order, and this puts upon diplomacy and jurisprudence alike the challenges of pluralism, revisionism, and innovation. This brings me now to some of the challenges that I see in um, our attempts to apply law to cybersecurity issues. And in my view, those challenges cannot be again regarded as purely legal challenges or the challenges that face lawyers alone for they cannot be separated from the politics as well as the technical infrastructure and architecture of cyber. The first challenge is the one that I would uh, call ontological inconsistency. But perhaps the most, most often or the most commonly referred to uh, issue or challenge is the, relates to the term attack. And as we understand it in international law, or let's say where our mind travels as international lawyers, as opposed to how this term is most frequently used by both information technology specialists, well, defacement attacks, denial of service attacks, or then uh, the military, computer network attacks, cyber attacks, that uh, in their essence, are incompatible to the extent where they create a lot of uh, confusion. But given the expansion of the military mandate, if you follow the doctrinal developments, especially in this country, then you see that the expect, ex, uh, expansion of uh, the mandate of the military in the cyber domain, given that I think these differences are fundamental in discussing the applicability of law to cyber attacks. But more importantly, so that's sort of an easy, peasy, known thing, but the more importantly, the term cyber itself does not lend itself to easy mapping in any discipline. The cyber domain 
unlike maybe seas or space, has no legal be- bearing, meaning no direct legal bearing. And verse, it has no distinct technological bearing either. So cyber is a political term. And where it, is ma- where it makes most sense is in the doctrinal language of the cyber domain and cyberspace. And now I give you a quote to the White House um, thinking, or at least so what, as we have to come to learn it from uh, some of the revelations. Cyberspace refers to the interdependent, interdependent network of information technology infrastructure that includes the Internet. And note here the real difference of scope between Internet and, uh, and cyber. That includes the Internet, telecommunications networks, computers, information or communication systems, networks, and embedded processors and controllers. And now I turn to Doctrine, Joint Chiefs of Staff, June 2015. Cyberspace is a global domain within the information environment, consisting of the interdependent network of information technology infrastructures and resident data, including the internet, telecommunications networks, computer systems, and embedded processors and controllers. Seen from a lawyer's perspective, there is no other way to addressing the legal issues of cyber, I would say, than by mapping its constituent elements to existing legal concepts. Well, that, however, is equally challenging and tricky as we would be faced with issues, any, any single lawyer would be faced with issues ranging from data protection and intellectual property to criminal law and law farm conflict to something we discuss even less, which is legal regimes applicable to international information infrastructure itself in its fundamental terms, submarine cables, satellites, wireless technologies. And with especially the latter, we would come to conclude that the regulation is vague and often outdated. There is another element to ontology that involves the competing views of uh, where the emphasis of the whole issue is. And that now goes to the Russian use of uh, words information, international information security, versus then the Western use of cybersecurity. In the Western discourse, international cybersecurity largely excludes the discussion of information itself. In the Sino-Russia approach, information, at the, on, the, on the other hand, or at the same time, is at the core of what needs to be secured. Now, conceptual clarity issues follow from the above examples, and I only add a couple of considerations. The crosstalk on norms of behavior and international law in particular alerts us to attention on how and why those words are used, or the words in particular are used. We often tend to restrain our thinking by failing to take a dictionary approach by what we see as issues or what we need to be tackled. So not necessarily countermeasures or sanctions, but any workable remedy to an emerging undesired threat or trend, not necessarily state responsibility, but a system of individual, corporate and government accountability for what goes on in their systems or what flows through them, their territories. The next challenge is lack of uh, observable and verifiable precedent. 
Well, most of what we have used and most of what the scholars are using as examples when they write about cyber is, um, well, the examples of 2007 Estonia, 2008 Georgia, Stuxnet, well, now increasingly the Sony case. But very few real cases merit discussion in the LOAC context. And the question there becomes mainly about trends and technological developments that talk to the ever more skillful deployment, deployment of cyber capabilities in support of all kinds of political aspirations. There are also natural limits to law. I mentioned that the question of applicability of law could be seen as, ex as exhausted, and that's the, the layman question, meaning is international law applicable in cyberspace? Well, why shouldn't it be? But what I mean by that is that scholars have visited almost every corner of existing classical, traditional international law, mapping it to existing, observable precedent and main hypothetical scenarios we can so far come up with. But now think. What we can come up with is what our legal education leads us to or, or allows us. Now, you also face the generational gap there, meaning that uh, current textbooks, law professors, are the age of your grandfathers. And they did not grow up with this technology. I did not grow up with this technology. And that is that our thinking of what is feasible is limited to what our technical advisors tell us. So, yes, we have mapped our existing knowledge and the knowledge that uh, we are expected to have. On the other hand, Russian and Chinese scholars keep asking questions and rejecting their Western answers to those questions, asking simple questions. What constitutes an armed attack in cyberspace? Well, this rejection is real, and I touched upon some of its implications. Not to, of course, understand that we haven't, we haven't um, agreed on what constitutes an armed attack outside of cyberspace. But there is principal resistance in the Sino-Russo alliance to the whole trend of information society that shouldn't go unnoticed when we discuss what is their view to the development of international law from here on. And I would say, well, what I've learned is that where issues are not of legal nature, one needs to be careful choosing the legal hammer for that particular nail. Attribution is a case in point where issues of attribution have to do more with capabilities and political decision-making than legal standards and tests. Also, attempts to stretch the existing legal concepts to more fundamental issues of cybersecurity that scholars, I would say, have come to do often, trying to get more out of those classical views, is... Um, in many ways dangerous, as it also leaves us blindfolded to counter-arguments and agendas that may appear non-legal, but then, of course, are part of a broader normative contestation. So further to the limits, internationally legally binding norms are not the only normative instruments. 
And this is where our loyalty as lawyers to our disciplines discipline puts restrictions to finding maybe the best suitable instrumental approach to any issue at hand. So issues like economic espionage, multi-stakeholder governance, critical infrastructure protection are some of the examples that all feature a combination of first domestic and international instruments or instrumental approach, but also go, go well beyond binding law. And now think back of the palette of, the inst of instruments that the UNGGE is operating with. Applicability of existing international law, norms of responsible state behavior that are intended to go into issues that are regarded by countries as not being exhaustively covered or resolved out under international law. This brings me to the issue of uh, development of international law. Well, two accounts on this. First, international law is made as we speak. And, and we have, I would say, a well, reasonably well-fleshed positivist view on the applicability of international law already. So there's a lot of literature out there. But I would say there are some areas where we have paid less attention to maybe possible limits of law or, or remedies that law offers. In particular, state practice in this field remains underexplored and partially because it is hard to observe or fully understand the use of these capabilities. But there is also another el important element of state practice that uh, feeds into the development of international law that is, I would say, less regarded, and that is the angle of generally accepted or general principles of international law, and therefore the whole uh, set of trends that uh, can be traced in the development of domestic legal systems. Now, secondly, the developments of cyber and international law are pretty hard to separate from general and parallel developments in international law. So, in my view, it is unlikely that without a treaty or any separate legal regime, the application, implementation and interpretation of international law in the context of information communication technologies would significantly differ from how international law is applied to unmanned systems, autonomous weapons, artificial intelligence. In this light, it might be useful to track the also ongoing discussions on, uh, for example, peaceful use in the context of space, or then uh, the whole issue of law applicable as applied to unmanned uh, systems. So, in that sense, developments in international information security are uh, parallel tracked with other international technology policy issues. And uh, I would say also that this technology centricity or technology related pressure on international law is by far broader than cyber. And this makes any consensus on cyber international law, well, rather unlikely in, in more details unless it reflects a broader development in law. So any tectonic shifts, I would say, in international law as applied to ICTs, in fact, would require new and specialized instruments. So the question there becomes, uh, what are those specialized questions that we need to address? Now, maybe 
to conclude, wrap it up, uh, unlike a century ago, where the United States itself was uh, entering the scene of international lawmaking, the developments of norms is, in the context of today's contestation, hardly an academic romantic exercise that follows the ideals and techniques of the legal discipline. And development of international law serves as a condition for preserving or to preserving the existing international legal system. So the rise of the normative, the normative, accompanies aspirations to adjust the world order and models of global governments to the interests of equalization and multilateralism. Now, this is a set of uh, loosely coupled thoughts and observations. And I would now, I would love to discuss some of these with you and, and, and hear your observations maybe on the same theme and maybe also encourage you to, well, contest everything I have said because if you do that, then you think further from the point I've become and um, that I think in some and in... Uh, in going from here will be the key to being able to deal with normative strategies and coming up with legal strategies that would support your government and actually that support other governments in making the claims that they're making. Thank you very much. No questions at all. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yes. I'm not sure I fully understood your summary of the uh, state positions. It sounded like you were characterizing Russia and China as adopting a general policy of non-aggression as an international standard. Is that a, a fair uh, summary of your, your comments? Or? Uh, but summary of pretty good, meaning that the non-aggression in the context of... In the context of establishing the state norms. Uh, what do you mean by being, why, why, why would you why would you pick up the issue or the component of non-aggression there? Just or would you like to be like sort of... I'm, I'm, I'm saying I'm asking for clarification on that. I was, I was unable to follow exactly what you were discussing in terms of ideal points for those actors. Early in the talk, discussing the norms. Okay, so the question is about what would be those sort of departure points for making those claims? Or are, is it the question about the uh, like alignment of China Russia views? The latter would be close to my question. Okay. So um, if your question is about whether I would tie the Russia China sort of alignment to their non aggression pact or non aggression movement as has been highlighted recently in, in media or by, by, by writers. The answer is yes and no, meaning that um, the question maybe is, is it just about non-aggression that uh, the Sino-Russo alignment is, is about? And I would, uh, I would say, well, it's definitely one of the elements, but uh, the question is, I think, the, what, um, what might drive uh, both Russian and, and, and Chinese aspirations to have a more fundamental, a more weighty say about international law? 
And that is, I would say more broadly, their shared, at least up, to, up until this point, a shared resistance or reluctance to acknowledge or, or agree that the information society and uh, free, uh, free uh, flow of information are necessarily where the world needs to be going. And that in itself comes again with uh, sort of uh, several out, 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 outgoing or like several additional ideas. For example, it's not just that uh, China and Russia think that way. I would say also many developing countries at this point and, and many countries who, whose regimes are built on control and sort of um, ability to control their information space. Are, are making or taking the same uh, same views. That said, however, mm. I would say that uh, different countries take take this, those views for different reasons, and that is why I would say again, this domestic di- domestic developments, the sort of unique uh, issues of every specific country. You can think of the Middle East, for example, or 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 some Asian countries. Why why they are taking just uh, rather more conservative views as to what the information um, um, society should should look like is understandable. And given also, and that, that emphasizes the gap, gap of capabilities between countries to not just military capabilities, but overall figuring out the questions of, uh, of developing their economic and social affairs with the help of ICTs. And, and you can also think of how, in many ways, different in many ways different positions are. For example, African countries that don't have even sort of this basic internet-related legislation in place. Not to say, not to mention these more strategic considerations of cybersecurity that even for Europe were relatively new or relatively surprising in 2007 when Estonia sort of came to see. Yes, uh, one there, one there. Go to you. The question has to do with, it seems that it is a, I guess, perspective that I challenge international law applies in the cyber context, but thinking about the IHL application in a cyber context, do you think there is space to create some sort of enhanced terms for IHL? I guess I, um, here's the example I'm thinking about. So you have your principle, like IHL And to answer that question of on whether, like, uh, the answers that we might need for uh, the several, well, and the increasingly prevalent uh, element of, of cyber in conflict, both uh, state and and, uh, and like international and and, and uh, national, I would. Well, first of all, I would say I don't know, meaning that um, I don't consider myself an uh, expert of uh, law of armed conflict to the extent that I would have very like well-developed views on what is missing there. But 
I would also say that uh, in the first place, I think uh, talking to issues such as proportionality uh, necessity uh, is very underdeveloped still in uh, in this sort of discourse between or considering or given this uh, military doctrine where it is going, the sort of reality that we're seeing in uh, well, Ukraine, Syria, wherever, and then also, well, I would say believably, uh, the fact that uh, cyber will play an uh, important role of, uh, in any international conflict given how much our weapon systems are, are dependent on it. So for sure there are nuances that we were unable to fully resolve on, under existing international law of armed conflict. But I would say before concluding where they are, uh, a much better understanding of deployment of those capabilities is needed. So that would be my answer to your question. Yeah, I was wondering. Um, it's, I was wondering, like, how do you sort of see countries? How do you see the disparity between countries' public statements and what they're actually doing? In the sense of, I feel like cyber law would be much more. It'd be more difficult to distinguish the, the disparity than other forms of law. And I guess one thing that comes to mind is. Um, I remember reading how like, the U.S. was taking a very strong stance in terms of you know, information protection security at the same time as sort of like introducing backdoor to encryption software. And sort of, I, I assume that that happens with a lot of different governments, especially with major players. And is that a common theme in other forms of international law or is it specific to cyber law? Well, I wouldn't say it's specific to cyber law, but then I am... Um Again, in no good position to assess like all other areas, but I would say your observation itself is, is really valuable. The fact that, uh, that one needs to sort of go beyond also the national statements or like uh, maybe the main leads taken and then observe or, or analyze what is the sort of, uh, reality of action and then maybe also sort of this aspiration for freedom of maneuver in, in this context. And... Um, and that's again, well, it's easy to kind of go into the conversation that, for example, this uh, behind this call for free flow of information, there is also this capability, and that has been said that uh, I think it was the UN uh, Human Rights, uh, I'm failing to say exactly what the post of that person is, but in the context of the 2013 resolution on, on privacy, in the context of ICTs, where it, it has been concluded that uh, that the US and the UK both possess capabilities to control, to monitor if they want uh, the information flows in the international information infrastructure. So if we were to accept that uh, conclusion, then of course uh, any country is interested in uh, deploying as freely as possible the capabilities that they have and pursuing their national interests. But then those interests inevitably are like go to not diverging but different directions, and that is now the balance of what, how much do you want to, or are you ever uh, willing to take to international legal fora to decide, or then how much do you want to have unilateral control, both also unilateral legal control over um, or, or, or sort of legal uh, instruments to to. Um, deal or to address your uh, your activities in cyberspace and here you can say how 
how in many ways uh, the U.S. has taken a rather unilateral approach to some of the issues that bother other countries. For example, let's take the, the supply chain, meaning many, many countries would take the position naturally that we need to have some sort of a rule that says that uh, no planting uh, stuff in the supply chain. But then if you can take a view that, well, we're not going to go for that rule, but we're going to make sure that we control our supply chain to the extent where we don't have to agree on that at the international level, then that talks to your ability to table a different proposition. Um, in my view, it is, um, it is less a legal issue, more a technical issue, but then the question is still how do we operate with, with that, um, in that vacuum. So how it's made in practice often and uh, is uh, this sort of uh, becoming part of alliances where uh, other parts of the alliance will help you do your homework about uh, forensics and, uh, and the sort of chain of evidence. And this goes to development of international criminal law in the field. International criminal law uh, is also partially the answer to how we deal with the non-state actors, because uh, when we go to the whole issue of multi-stakeholderism in international law, then there is very little in international law that allows it to extend any like direct obligations or, or, or rights more rights than obligations or ramifications to, to those activities. I think though the lessons that we are learning is when you think of, uh, for example, even the, the Council of Europe uh, Cybercrime Convention or the Budapest Convention, then Estonia in 2007 had that convention ratified and, and we were a keen follower of that instrument. But what we learned is that here is where your national law needs to still take account those sort of... Uh, different the motivations of actions and therefore, for example, uh, look at the whole system of sanctions and also your ability to, to secure evidence. So that is where we see these, uh, for example, CERT cooperation, Computer Emergency Response Team cooperation, uh, the whole um, furthering of the culture of criminal cooperation as, I would say, the key, key premises for, like, Filling into those gaps. You had a question. My question is actually the exact same. Um, the, the are, you, are you happy with the answer or do you want to yeah. read further? Yeah, um, well, I was, I was maybe just to, as a follow up, curious if, um, from a legal perspective, if more attention has been given to um, focusing on state actors versus non state actors or just. Uh, that's a good now, fair point, meaning that are we focusing on one or the other, or meaning how perfect I should be doing. And now that goes back to also these sort of elements, meaning that in order to deal with cyber, we have to take it to elements of law that we can use to meaningfully deal with those aspects, right? And so I think as to your question, then it is fair to say that the UNGG, or the first committee, primarily deals with state actors. 
and at the same time points out the threat, the non-state actor threat that may uh, rise to the level of, of threatening international peace and security. However, the Council of Europe, for example, uh, deals primarily with uh, the whole issue of non-state actors or like focusing on how do we improve or how do we fill in the gaps that exist in criminal law. So in that sense, um, if you were to look at the whole picture of how we deal with cyber security issues at the international level versus international cybersecurity, which is a sort of household terms for the UNGG, the first committee process, then you were to see that you can map, well, you name it, the amount of international organizations to it, including WIPO, ITU, um, well, OSCE, like a bunch of them. And each of them uh, over time has developed and, well, of course, follows its original mandate, but also has developed this rather unique take on, on cybersecurity and and that has uh, significantly improved, I would say, in the past seven years or so, where because uh, the initial race uh, after acknowledging this international uh, politically motivated attacks was this, that everybody now is dealing with international cybersecurity, which cannot be the case. Yes, let's take that one. to the very issues that are at the at desks of, of uh, policymakers these days, which the question the questions to be asked is whether we do develop international law there, or before developing international law, do we develop our practice of international law, seeking to hold countries responsible then for uh, their like creating legal consequences and uh, exhausting the legal remedies that are there in international law or like multilateral legal instruments. So it is one of the key questions I think that uh, some of the governments are currently looking and if you have interest in pursuing that, uh, that theme or topic then I'm sure you will, uh, you will get a really good job in, uh, in uh, dealing with uh, international cybersecurity. And with that, uh, I, I'm basically over time. Uh, I would just, well, first of all, thank you. Thank you for thinking along and, and asking all those questions. And, and believe me, what we are facing is only getting started. That means not just cyber, but the whole technology drawn um, state of affairs. And therefore, international law is one of the, I would say, most uh, interesting disciplines to look into in the coming uh, periods. Thank you very much.